Hello and welcome to another episode of the Africa Energy and Climate Change podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Victor Mallet, uh, and I'm joined today by Dan Marks, who is the power editor for the Africa Energy magazine uh, and publication. Uh, without further ado, welcome, Dan, to, to the podcast. Uh, you're joining us uh, from, from the UK, I believe, where the, the magazine is based. Um, Dan, could you please just share us share a little bit about uh, what Africa Energy is uh, as a publication, as a, as an entity, and then perhaps tell us a little bit about about what you do there, um, and then we'll take it from there. Um, thanks for inviting me on. So, um, okay. Africa Energy is well started life as a publication. Um, actually, it's a newsletter in the Financial Times magazine stable um, it didn't live there for incredibly for a very long time it then went to platts and then was bought out by management who still still own it um, so the publication itself is is completely independent we're owned by management who still write and edit the, the publication um, we don't take adverts um, we're subscription only, so we can be about as independent as it's possible for a publication to be. Um, you can never be completely independent because you still need subscribers. <laughs> so, sure. Um, sure. But, um, but yes, yeah, so that's the publication. And alongside that um, has grown up a few different elements. There's um, We do quite a lot of consultancy work. Um, we produce kind of research for international organizations such as the Africa EU Energy Partnership and Infrastructure Consortium for Africa, um, work around kind of how much capacity is being added on the continent and um, you know, financial flows and things like that, um, mm -hmm. as well as your work for private clients. And we have a kind of associated conference company. Um, it's a okay. different company, but we, we do a lot of the producing for that um and we also have a database which is called african ng live data which was built out of the publication and consultancy work and tracks um electricity generation specifically projects across the continent it's got very nearly seven thousand projects i imagine it'll have seven thousand projects within the next month or two we add a couple of hundred every year mm -hmm. um so yeah so that's that's the the company broadly yes. my role within it is is as power editor so effectively means that i write quite a lot on the power sector for the publication um i also um manage the research for african energy live data and kind of support work that comes out of that and technical work if we're working on energy modeling or or things like that for consultancy and a lot of that kind of interfacing type mm -hmm. of side of side of things so um, yeah, I've been doing working for African Energy for about ten years now. Um, not okay. always full time. Also, when I was a student, um, mm -hmm. for a second time. Um, so yeah, so I've been following African Energy sector for quite a, quite some quite some time. Nowhere near as long as many <laughs> many other people, but for a good ten years and covering the oh. whole continent as uh, yeah. as well. So it's quite an interesting remit. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It does. It does sound very interesting. I mean, I've been a follower of, of African Energy, uh, the magazine and its publications for at least about 10 years as well. 
uh, and I'm continuously impressed with the quality of data that's produced and information. Um, and probably the leading uh, kind of data uh, collector and uh, aggregator um, of, of the continent of what's going on in, in both from oil and gas, as well as all the way to renewable energy projects, coal projects, etc. So um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very laudable publication needs to needs to be more recognized for what it does. Um, one of yeah, one of my initial questions would be if you can, based on your vantage your vantage point currently, I think it'd be really interesting to give uh, our listeners just a sense of of what's going on on the continent in terms of in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in terms of new power projects, the rate of new power projects that are being developed and and coming online. Um, it sounds like you know this is probably something that that is well tracked. Uh, what kind of rates, net kind of net amount of, of projects are coming online per year? How many megawatts, let's say, um, in sub-Saharan Africa? What, what, do you have some, can you give us a, a sense of that, a feeling at least of what we're talking about? And then how much of it is, is renewable versus, let's say, gas-based? Gas sure. So we're at a complicated kind of point in in the kind of African power sector as a whole, really. Um, it's quite a kind of inflection point, um, but with multiple inflections all coming at once um, okay. over the last couple of years. So you have the energy transition happening, um, which is obviously a very big thing, especially for donors, and Africa is a very donor-heavy place, um, yes. and largely dependent on donors for for private projects and for a lot of the power projects, um, even where there's a, a private commercial element. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, at the same time, there's a kind of inflection point as the private sector becomes more prominent, more established on the continent. I mean, that that is has been going on for longer, but it's probably in some ways at an earlier stage. It's a much more complicated mm -hmm. thing to do. Um, in a lot of ways. So that's also happening. And that transition from public to private, or at least to kind of more of a balance between public and private, um, has, I think, some unforeseen kind of consequences. And then um, at the same time, you've got COVID, which has caused havoc everywhere in the world. And Africa's no exception in the power sector in particular. Yeah. Um, a slump in demand, which hit utilities harder than in other places, well, it's harder perhaps. I mean, you'd be looking at the UK actually 20, is it 12 yeah. or 20, a whole, a whole bunch of electricity distributors and traders have just gone bust. Um, and, you know, Africa has, you know, already had utilities in difficult financial situations. So they've been hit, hit hard as well. And they're mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of trying to get out and that, and projects have been delayed and everyone's a bit, it's very uncertain as to how much growth there will be. And, and you know, growth at this point is a bit misleading because you're coming from a very low base because of COVID and everything sure. else. So, so you've got a whole load of things happening and you can see this in the data. So that you can tell that there's more going on than COVID because the kind of inflection points started pre-2020, uh, so 2019 in some cases, especially in, if you include North Africa in the figures. So, um, so if we look at 
new on-grid capacity added, that average kind of between 2016 and 2020, so the five years to 2020, is about 4.6 gigawatts per year. Um, that's for the whole of Africa. Um, so you're really not talking a lot. If you, if you compare to China, um, you know, you're... You're, you're in minuscule territory, which which is you know, explains a lot of the problems that Africa has. Yes. But there's there's a really large kind of bulge in the middle of the of the decade, um, mm-hmm. where okay, so 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 that so the four point six gigawatts per year average is for sub-Saharan Africa. Um, if you include North Africa, then it's it's a fair amount higher at twelve at twelve gigawatts. Um, okay. So there's a bulge in in the middle of the decade, and I think it's really important to to recognise, and I don't think it's recognised enough, how cyclical um, gener- new generation capacity in Africa is, and it's hugely problematic because installed generation capacity should not be cyclical. <laughs> it should follow kind of growth growth trends, and while growth is cyclical, the variation swings are not so dramatic um, as they are in in electricity generation, usually it's a result of failure to invest, messing around, and then hitting a crunch point where there's blackouts all the time and then panicking and then investing in a whole load of stuff, probably yeah. in an unsuitable way that's quite expensive, not necessarily the best technology or provider for you. And then kind of spending the next few years trying to reconcile the fact that that's just happened with the fact that your power is now really expensive. Um, and you've now got too much of it. <laughs> and then the cycle mm-hmm. begins all over again. Um, and you can see this everywhere. I mean, South Africa is really notorious for this. They come in South Africa every couple of decades. You know, there's a huge wave of building between kind of the, in the 60s and 70s, and then pretty much nothing in the 90s and 2000s. And then there's quite an effort to get the build going again in the 2010s. And that was, you know, a lot of the cause behind ESCOM going first. I mean, there's a lot of talk about yeah. yeah, corruption and stuff at ESCOM, and that's for sure been a problem, but, you know, as much of a problem, if anything, a bigger problem has been the failure of the of the mega project plan. Yeah, sure. Um, and that, you know, there, there's corruption elements in that, for sure, and that's been shown, but, but actually there's a lot of issues just around bad project management and, you know, the fact that mega projects nearly always go wrong. Um, so you can see this everywhere, you know, I mean, you see it in, in Ghana where they have blackouts in you know, 2015, 16, and, and then massive procurement drive over procured, given the capacity of the distributor, um, still completely failed to reform the distributor. Um, there's been some efforts, but the main, the main kind of the main drive to concession electricity company of Ghana failed. Um, and there's not really any sign. You know, the need for the concession or the idea behind the concession was to allow ECG, which is perhaps the biggest distributor in sub-Saharan Africa, outside South Africa, um, to raise debt. And it needs to raise a huge amount of debt in order to invest in its, in its network. Um, without that, it's going to continue to fail and it's continuing to fail. But at the moment, you know, with some, some things happening and you know, and this, this is something you see everywhere. So at the moment, we are in the low side of that. So we had big procurements around the middle of the decades. You know, this also kind of came alongside the commodity cycle, like high prices for oil and gas in 2015, 
um, company um, exporters had quite a lot of money um, yeah. flashing around and uh, you know Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana built well procured fair amounts then they've ended up having more than they can sell um, yes. certainly more than they can sell at the prices they're trying to charge very inefficient networks all over across the board in all three countries um, mm -hmm. they're the main drivers of, of the, the data in sub-Saharan Africa they're the big markets um, if they are having a low period where not a lot's coming online then sub-Saharan Africa is having a low period where not a lot's coming online um, okay. uh, same with South Africa I mean South Africa got more capacity than the rest of sub-Saharan Africa put together um, exactly. you know, their procurement really dominates the, the numbers and then if you include North Africa then North Africa dominates the numbers um, alongside South Africa so um, you really have to break it down to see different stories but the kind of overall high level picture is that we've had a slump and you can really see that so I mean between 2016 to 2018 your average for the whole continent is 14.4 gigawatts a year Okay. Um, 2019, 2020, your average is 8.2. Um, we only have data for the first half of 2021, but it, it was very poor, like 3.4 gigawatts added for the whole continent, 1.3 in Sub-Saharan Africa, the lowest quarterly Q2 additions, and these are all net additions, the quarterly lowest Q2 additions, I think, since, since the 2000s. Um, so it's been kind of it's not been the greatest period and you know, the industry's been slow yeah. but it's, it's picking up again and you know as, as if gdp picks up a lot if there's a you know a post-covid kickback which you would expect there to be because yeah you're going from very low to quite high um, and as you can see with gas demand that has and you know that has consequences that are not what what you might simplistically expect um, mm -hmm. growth when growth kicks back in all at once in multiple countries you have supply chain issues and all the rest of it so um that's a bit unpredictable but you can see signs the industry is certainly heating up like there's a lot there's a lot going on now in 2022 or since 2021? 2020, 2022 second half of 2021 you started to see okay. it. and that will filter through into the numbers probably later on but there are there are interesting questions about that too a lot of that is in renewables and yes. you really need you know it doesn't take a lot of projects for everyone to be quite busy um but these projects are really tiny in comparison to um most thermal plants you, know, you your enormous wind plant in kenya is 300 um exactly. odd megawatts in lake Tacana. i mean that's that's a, a very small gas power plant um that's 300 50 megawatts or something so um yeah so you can get everyone quite busy with lots of projects all over the place without necessarily adding enormous quantities of of capacity and equally sure. e the capacity being added is quite often especially in in the smaller markets is is to substitute hfo and diesel so mm -hmm. it's it's adding megawatts obviously but it's also substituting megawatts so you're substituting dirty megawatts for clean megawatts but you're not necessarily adding more megawatts or megawatts yeah. so um uh you know you make the you put the utility in a better position um you know you you have that extra capacity if you need it to stop blackouts and stuff but you don't necessarily really want to be using it um yeah. thermal capacity so 
you know, your 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 net output might not increase so much, and that's even before you consider that obviously your actual output from a 300 megawatt wind farm is is hugely less than a 300 megawatt coal or gas plant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean. It's and how does this break down? Like you mentioned renewables and uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, is there of the, you know, let's say 4.6 gigawatts, um, that's the five-year average, are you seeing more renewables as a percentage of that uh, new kind of net addition? Um, where, where we, is it still around 10% uh, of all that energy or capacity being renewables? Or are we seeing that number go up uh, in any way? Yeah. So the proportion of renewables is certainly going up. And I mean, it should be said actually just before that, that, that there's quite a lot of positive trends in Africa, actually. So the last decade, you know, so if you take 2011 to 2020, you know, your average capacity additions are for the whole continent, 9.6 gigawatts. For sub-Saharan Africa, they are um, you know, just under four. If you take the decade okay. before, 2001 to 2010, your average for the whole continent is about 3.7 and your average for sub-Saharan Africa is you know, 1.3. So you've kind of trebled your um, your capacity additions over over that decade. So there really has been, if you so if you look at even bigger than beyond the cycle, there's there's a lot more going on. Even 2019, 2020 would be would have been really great years in the 2000s. They're just not such yeah. good years for the 2010s. Um, I mean, in terms of renewables, that proportion has, has is going up. Um, quite steadily. Um, so in terms of the whole of Africa, it's gone up from, it's been about an average, so if you take again the five years, 2016 to 2020, got an average of 30% of all new capacity additions are renewable. Um, 2011 to 2015 is 18%. Um, before that, if you take the whole decades, 2001 to 2010, your average is just 16%. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa tends to be a lot higher, um, mostly because of hydropower. Um, okay. So hydropower, you look the last 2016 to 2020, you got an average of 56%, uh, 2011 to 2015, an average of 34, 35%, 2001 to 2010, an average of, of 28%. So again, you see really big changes around that. And mostly that's around uh, kind of the end of, um, liquid fuel additions in a lot of cases as you know, you, you're talking at starting to look at negative figures over the next few years potentially whereas you're looking at a lot of and this is all on grid by the way so okay not grid, but um you, know, you had quite a lot of, of thermal capacity um that's that's gone down largely you know being substituted with renewables because how you've got that capacity you want to use it less because it's very expensive um, sure so, um, you know, but I mean, people, it's also sort of important to remember that within this is the development cycle, you know, in a very fragile um, and poor country, um, a thermal plant that's quite expensive can be the best way to start. You know, thermal plants are, are very resilient, like um, diesel engines, the diesel supply chain is very well established. There's no shortage. It's quite easy to get in and out. You can put an engine in a port and it can power your whole capital city um, because yeah. your land is incredibly low and your network's rubbish and you know you're you're kind of the cost of diesel is 
is not that important compared to the fact that you don't have any power um aside from that and you know the cost of your network and uh, all the rest of it so um you know there are reasons to start with with diesel and hfo and you know you you couldn't start as a very poor country with virtually no existent network like starting with a solar plant would be impossible and starting with a solar and battery plant would be difficult because they're also harder to operate you've yeah. got grids with huge amount of voltage fluctuations with massive demand fluctuations with sudden explosions at substations and and such like yeah. which cause cause all sorts of problems that a diesel generator is very well placed to help you with which a solar and battery plant just are not um, at the moment um, yeah yeah so, you know there are very good reasons to start with with diesel and hfo in places that are um fragile or politically unstable remote without proper grids starting pretty much from I mean, you're never starting from zero, but starting with potentially decrepit infrastructure, maybe even worse than starting at zero. You've got to clear away the old stuff to put in the new stuff. Doesn't make makes it worse, not not better. Mm. Um, you know, and grids that don't necessarily make sense for the modern thing. And, and you, but once you've got that thermal element, you want to start using it less. You've got a lot of um, donors that want to give you capacity building money to add in renewables. So, you know, then adding a kind of solar plants and stuff like that starts to make a bit of sense. But but then you're going to hit pretty quickly hit a, a threshold whereby you can't add any more. And then you're going to need some more, um, you know, thermal capacity or hydro capacity or something. Baseload, to, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, to to balance out. I mean, well, baseload, yeah, controversial word these days, but, but you certainly need something that's dispatchable. Um, yeah. Um, which which solar is not and batteries obviously are but but there are limitations with that as well and you've still got to fill the battery um and yeah and people and it's really important to remember that you are dealing with networks which are not very good even in you know i mean in nigeria it's terrible but you know even in like ghana and kenya you know voltage having consistent voltages is really hard and you're also dealing with in, in most cases countries which are very low density populations so you've got long transmission lines going a long long way with very little load yeah the end of them and on them so the voltage again maintaining voltage and things like that is very difficult so so adding kind of fluctuating technologies and stuff into the mix is difficult and this is why a lot of a lot of african leaders have been you know complaining about the the kind of climate agenda um in the obviously they you know africa's needs to be low carbon this <laughs> is one of the most exposed places to the effects of climate change in the world but but it also needs to develop and if you're coming from zero you're not retrofitting an existing network it's it's not like say south africa or north africa or europe or america you're coming from a place that that doesn't have stable supply that's dirty you're coming from a place which has a very unreliable supply in most cases and uh, it's expensive with utilities that are not necessarily functioning completely and with markets like most importantly really like with market structures that just don't work um and are yeah. not and are not complete um yeah you know, so so to make that it's a it's a very different scenario and actually you know dispatchable power is quite important on it even if it's a tr- even if it's a transitional thing or if it's not very much you know it, it's it's a lot for the 100 megawatts in most african countries of hfo would be transformatively big for the grid. 100 megawatts in most African countries 
um, you know, is is like ten percent of the grid or or more. Um, if I can actually see if I've got some totals here, I haven't added up totals in my so, my spreadsheet. I mean, with that, yeah, um, I mean, with that in mind, are you are you then also seeing an increase in in the amount of gas capacity that's available as both dispatchable and in a way baseload? Um, or is there more an incursion of HFO, let's say, in coal, or is there is there growth on the gas side to keep to keep the stability and, and the dispatchability of these grids? What what are you what's your data saying saying about that? In a lot of places, you're not getting any of that, and that's that is the worry, and that's also partly the slowdown. So you've got a kind of mismatch in in funds for a start. So you've got a mismatch in resources, and you've got a mismatch. In, in, as in like natural resources and you've got a mismatch in funds so you know at the start you have a lot of um you have a lot of funders who want to fund renewable projects um so uh, but hydro less so so they want to fund solar and wind because they're quite easy um and not too controversial um but they don't really want to fund hydro because it's you know you fall into all sorts of issues with moving people off land, resettlement, you know, resettlement payments, very imperfect science. Um, when I've talked to people involved in trying to make that work, they've always said that it never, never truly works, the resettlement action plan. You never really get everybody, not everybody's properly comp uh, compensated um, for a really big dam. You've got ecological issues. Um, you know, I know of developers who've been stuck because um, kind of five species of rare plants have been identified in the area of the dam um, so you know people don't really want to do that so there's a lot of funding available for your um, non-dispatchable variable renewable energy and um, which it which is good and it is needed in Africa and certainly we're not at the threshold yet whereby most countries you know can have absorbed as much as they can and need lots yeah. of dispatchable power but we are, that's not necessarily taking into account that we may be at the point where well I mean we said the point where a lot of utilities aren't very experienced with variable renewable power and you know you don't get experience overnight um so actually you know some some dispatchable power would be useful so that's that's the first thing so you've got a lot of people who want to put money okay. in that now nobody wants to build diesel and hfo obviously and um, there have been a couple of, of plants um like i think most notably really the case plant in in mali was 90 megawatt um ipp that did receive donor financing um, from a couple of places, I think it had Islamic Development Bank, it had Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund, um, and some others. Um, you know, that the, and and the that power just, barges as well, HFO power barges that are probably yeah, although they tend to be funded very differently to the car power ship because they're um, they're rental, they're not meant to be long term, and they you know, and they can be transitional, and you know, and they also as they they you know they've seen the writing on the wall there and there doing FSRUs to, to bring in gas rather than HFO. Um, but so you're not seeing a huge amount of HFO plants. I mean, there's one being tendered, I think, in Gambia. Um, I actually can't think of any more utility scale ones that are being built. Um, now, then we talk about gas. Now, gas was seen as, you know, the way to go, much cleaner, still offers you all the benefits of of um, you know, liquid fuels, but but with lots less emissions, and also with yeah. kind of the advantage in a few cases of utilizing domestic resources, um, that is really being hit at the moment by the kind of international backlash and the advanced economy agenda 
for using less gas weirdly as they consume more gas than they've ever consumed before. <laughs> um, yeah. A hugely difficult agenda, I think, for everybody who follows Africa to really get behind. I, mean, I think it's very hard to say that it's not anything but massively hypocritical, the, the move to stop funding gas yeah. upstream and gas power. Um, you know, there's, there's now quite a lot of talk in Mozambique about it being difficult to find financiers for, for their upstream gas. But at the same time, you know, apparently even it's hard to get capacity building funds um, you mm-hmm. know, to, to build capacity at, at governments to, to make best use of the funds and to properly um, regulate the sector. And at the same time, and, you know, this is because um, developed countries, a lot of advanced economies have said they won't fund gas anymore. But at the same time, all these advanced economies said they, would only, they wouldn't fund gas abroad, but they're quite happily subsidising and funding gas at home. I mean, the UK won't even, won't even uh, put a tax on its own gas developers to stop a cost of living crisis. crisis. The US is very happy to fund and, and support the, the gas, um, shale gas, its own shale gas industry. And, you know, and is busy doing deals to supply gas to Europe. Yes. Uh, yeah, but... but you know, somehow just replacing this gas exactly like for like with gas from Mozambique or Tanzania or Angola or Nigeria is, or is somehow outrageous or Cameroon or something. Um, it's, it's a hugely difficult agenda. I think it's, personally, I think it's massively hypocritical. It's very hard to say it's anything other really than an than a actual market grab by the United States in a lot of ways. Mm. <laughs> I think they are, or they're, you know, they're, heading to be they're certainly one of the biggest energy exporters in the world yes uh, now there's no funding available for anyone else to to produce lng um you know there's kind of this talk of oh well you know there's enough resources for for the transition well i mean that that's very debatable but also just because there's enough resources doesn't mean that, that all that money should go to the united states why shouldn't people buy gas from mozambique instead um, yes, exactly. or Tanzania or Angola, and certainly, why shouldn't African countries be able to use use that gas? Um, you know, use gas. So why shouldn't South Africa be able to import Mozambican gas? Um, you know, can you use LNG from Tanzania or Mozambique? You know, why why shouldn't yeah. um, you know LNG from Nigeria be shuttled along the coast to Tema or to you know projects in in Cote d'Ivoire or Benin or anything like that? Um, Senegal, there's it's you know it's it's yeah. a very difficult agenda to get behind. I I personally think it's absolute nonsense. I don't think it helps anybody. I also think you're focusing on the wrong end. Like you focusing on the supply misses the point. If there's a demand, then that's because we need it. You know, the sure. gas the gas is required because energy systems as they are right now require it. Now it's on the suppliers whether they risk investing in it. Like you. Know, if you're if you're Total Energies or you're you know and you're in or you're any or you're Exxon in, in the Ravuma Basin, well you take the risk of demand suddenly disappearing globally. Um, you know, you say, well, we think that we're gonna need LNG for the next 20 years, but if in fact nobody's using gas in 10 years because there's incredible hydrogen developments or battery developments, well, they lose. You know, and that's that's really their problem. But it doesn't, their investment in that does not make carbon emissions what makes carbon emissions is burning it in power plants or in cars or whatever so you know, you've got to look at what is the energy mix 
you know, what are we using for transport? What fuels are we using? Like what fuels are we using for heating? What fuels are we using for generating electricity? Making sure that is as clean as it's technologically and affordable to do. And personally, I just think why, why worry about the, the supply side? The supply will just match demands. Like supply can't create yeah. demands necessarily. Um, you know, they may just end up making bad investments and, and that's a risk sure. that, you know, they sure. take. And, and also we, sh- we, we do go around hammering oil and gas companies a lot. And like, you know, I think if the energy transition shows us anything is that these corporate behemoths are corporate behemoths. They're not moral, ethical entities. Like some, sometimes there are people within them who do bad things. And sometimes they act in ways that have been bad for countries, for sure, incredibly bad. And sometimes they invest in things that are very good. Um, yeah. you know, and ultimately, we need gas at the moment. I, I really don't see why it shouldn't come from Mozambique if it's commercially viable to do so, um, just because we're restricting funding for it. <laughs> I don't yeah. see why we shouldn't no, support I mean, Mozambique. That's a great either. point. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean... It, you're absolutely right. It is extremely hypocritical um, uh, for Western, primarily Western countries, not to say we'll will not fund gas projects, exploration, production uh, anymore, uh, or at least we'll you know we'll put it on the on the back burner, so to speak. While at home, they're they're continuously investing in that. Um, do you, in terms of what you've seen in the marketplace, is there? Is there enough of a capital base from within, let's say, African banks like the African Development Bank uh, um, and others like that, or f- perhaps from Asian funds to to get gas projects, um, specifically gas projects underway? Is that going to be a new kind of um, competitive scenario where there's you know these different players? now positioning themselves to to fund some of these projects with the view obviously of being able to purchase and have first rights on on that gas um is that something that might be playing out in the in the near future for markets like mozambique or angola nigeria ghana as well well so right now no (laughs) i would say just simply no especially not for the upstream um You know, I mean, upstream, especially where the African deposits are deep offshore, usually. Um, I mean, you know, the amount of money that's that's required to develop the Ravuma Basin is multiples of Mozambique's entire annual GDP, let alone the government's, um, you know, actual revenue. So, you know, you're you're talking multiples. I mean, tens of billions of dollars. Like, I think we're talking about thirty-three billion dollars for either the whole or parts of Ravuma Basin. Um, Africa. African financial sources are definitely certainly not able to generate that at the present time. Um, now, whether, you know, okay, in future, will I? Well, there's no reason why not. But I mean, in terms of being smaller projects like gas and, and renewable power, um, mobilizing African financial resources has been a, a target for, for ages, for years um, in Africa. And it's, and it's proven very difficult for a, a variety of reasons. Um, it may be mobilized more now that it's needed. Um, certainly, you know, the African Development Bank has has funds for a lot of could fund a lot of gas power plants and things like that. They they have a big balance sheet. Um, yeah. But you know, the African Development Bank also has pressure from its you know people who sit on its board and such. Like it's not a solely an African institution. 
Um, you know, and, and what about Asian sources of capital? Like, um, well, that that's the interesting thing. I mean, will China come in and fill the gap? Certainly, I doubt India. India is not a realistic source. They have done bits and pieces in places like Zimbabwe in the power sector. Generally, it's not gone very well. Um, there's been a few problems with Indian backed and built projects on the continent. Um, China obviously is the big one. China has endless amounts of money. You can see that just with what's happening in China. You can see that's what's happened with the hydropower dams. Um, will it step in to gas? You haven't seen it so far, but but maybe it will. Um, I mean, there are there are obviously other other sources as well. I mean, there have been big incidents incidences of of African mega projects. I mean, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is one, um, quite interesting one. Um, uh, what was Rufiji or Stiglitz Gorge and is now the Nyerere Dam in Tanzania is, is another kind of interesting interesting one. I mean, it's nowhere near, near finished and uh, there's a lot of skepticism about how they're going to continue financing, but it's an interesting, it's an intra-African kind of project, you know, and it maybe is a geopolitical project as well, but but you know that's that's largely Egypt funded. Um, yes. I guess you could say by Egypt's all of Egypt's backers in the perhaps the Middle East and uh, and America maybe. Um, but you know, but in in some important senses, that's that's an African project, an African led project. Um, mm. So you know, there's mobilization of of resources, but but these are quite isolated cases. You know, there's um, I mean, at a small scale, it's certainly possible, but but th- a lot of things have to change. Um, you know, African banks um, have have be struggled to invest in power projects for for a variety of reasons. Quite often, because the you know, return on government treasuries are so high, lack of familiarity with that kind of project. Same with pension funds, African pension funds. There are big pots of money around, especially for the power sector. Um, less for less for upstream where the amounts are just just an order of magnitude bigger but for the power sector there are there are bits and pieces but um you know there's there's i think the thing is if you're expecting african money to go away international money won't then i i think you are likely to be disappointed um if international money won't go there because there's not enough return and certainty and the investment isn't good enough why would african money go there yeah. So are we seeing a, a future, you think, where the, some of these assets, you, whether it's Ravuma or elsewhere, might end up being stranded kind of assets based on the new interest in decreasing, uh, at least from the from, from the US and Europe, in decreasing investments in, in gas exploration and production from the continent? Is that... Well, I mean, there's two, so, I mean, there's two different risks, and I would have said that... The, the bigger risk really is that they don't happen in the first place because, because it's too hard to get funding. Um, I mean, I think the demand is quite clearly there. I mean, it's the same as, you know, you could, you could say, oh, well, investing in a coal mine is a terrible investment right now. Nobody, nobody wants coal. But coal, more coal was burnt in power plants last year than possibly ever in history. <laughs> and you know, the, the price was up to $130 a tonne. I mean, investing in a coal mine now is a brilliant decision if you just purely want to make money. Um, so, so you know, so why I don't see why LNG should really be any different. Like Europe, Europe is is really reliant on on gas. Um, 
you know, you're banking on a transition, a technological transition that has not happened yet in an environment where the where the historic, like your historic, you know, um, evidence base is not hugely encouraging when it comes to massive change and, you know, overnight, you know, changes and this kind of stuff. I mean, there's obviously been big change, but there's been, you know, the reductions have been easy so far in Europe and Europe's easy to reduce. You, you're reliant on coal and you switch to gas. Brilliant. You've like, you've halved, you've halved yeah. your carbon. Um, yes. Wonderful. Well done you. Haven't you all done well? And, you know, and you've, you've done a lot of, there's a lot of wind um, that's been built, but a lot of it, you know, that's all backed up by gas fundamentally and you know bits of nuclear legacy um shutting down the nuclear plants is quite possibly meant that carbon emissions <laughs> you know i mean has meant that carbon emissions you know have increased in germany and stuff like that there's there's all sorts of it's a very different situation than than africa faces um and but mm. from from an from an upstream perspective i mean why is i mean do we see gas being used less and less in europe in the next 10 years i don't know i mean the next 20 years maybe but you know over that time period africa for sure is going to need more gas and it's going to have more gas power plants um you know i mean actually to answer your question from a while ago in terms of you know new gas power plants and stuff um yes there is there are new gas power plants on the agenda but um it's it's a differentiated picture so where there's domestic resources, there tends to have been a kind of, there's actually been a problem with having enough power plants to take the domestic resource already. So when there are power plants and then enough demands to take the power from those power plants. So if you take Ghana, um, there were too many power plants, but the structure of the sector meant a lot of those power plants were using a lot of like crude oil rather than gas anyway. Yeah. So the, the goal has been to, you know, get, gas from the west to the east of the country um you know the west african gas, gas pipeline is still not working properly so you're using sankofa and jubilee and um all those fields in the west of ghana to power the east and the goal has just been to tr to convert the plants running on lco to running on gas to lower the cost of power but there's too much power anyway in Ghana, there's not really too much power, but there's there's more power than the utility can sell yes. um, because its network is rubbish. Um, so you've got that. And Nigeria has a similar problem. They, they've built a lot of gas power plants. Half of them are not working half the time because the gas is not reaching them. And then because nobody's paying for the power or has been and yeah. from discos and the transmissions, bottlenecks everywhere. So, so there you've got problems as well. So, um, so you've got um, so those countries are not building a lot at the moment. They're finishing off construction of plants that were planned years ago. Um, you've got countries that are about to become gas producers, which which are looking at gas power plants, which using domestic gas. So Mozambique obviously already has domestic gas and gas power plants, and they've they've just reached financial close on a, a 450 megawatt plant in Tamane. Um, that's hugely important projects and is, is anchoring half of their backbone, transmission backbone, and and you know, will is meant to facilitate supposedly more renewables and stuff. And, and you know, I think it will. Mozambique's a very practical place. Um, 
And, you know, and there's because there's infrastructure there already through the Rumpco pipeline, which takes gas from Pandey into Mali and Mozambique through to Johannesburg or the area around Johannesburg, you've got a lot of potential for gas, putting gas into that line. There's an FSRU project to top that up. Um, yeah. There's going to be more gas from Pandey into Mali, although only enough to kind of slow the decline. Um, and you? so there may be other unsure finds and stuff. Yeah, yeah. See, but, yeah. but you've got, so you've got gas, potential there along that pipeline as it exists already in South Africa and Mozambique. Um, Mauritania obviously shares Senegal's resources, so you know, there's, there's gas power projects there. Um, but then, and then you have the LNG projects, um, the import projects. And this, this is a really interesting area because there's the companies have been trying to do this for ages, um, all the way back to kind of Ghana 1000 and stuff like that. Exactly, um, exactly. But, the model has changed and I think become more realistic. And I think we are getting to the point where it could happen, but it's it's very, it's there's some technological innovations and there's some business model innovations. And, and that's what's interesting. So what do you see how how do you see the model becoming more more feasible and practical? So so just to explain briefly, so the LNG import is essentially where LNG is, is transported in, in ships as a liquid and then gasified onshore uh, to feed power plants. Uh, or offshore. Or offshore to feed, exactly, and then to feed uh, power production. Um, but how are you seeing this developing as, a, as, as more realistic going forward? Sure, well, so, the, so the traditional model was basically, as you say, that you would import LNG and you would use that You'd gasify it. Usually in Africa, they, they were looking at FSRUs, not usually onshore facilities, in some cases onshore, but usually yeah. FSRU, which is a floating storage regasification unit, which is basically a big ship, um, which gasifies the LNG, so heats it up so that it's a gas and not a liquid, and then pumps it through a pipeline to the shore. Um, so the idea was that you would, you would set all of this up as a single project, and it's a very complicated transaction because you've got to build a power plant that's big enough to justify having an FSIU, which is very expensive. Um, and to do that, you have to have the demand for a very large power plant. You have to have a sector where a very large power plant is not going to be a, a, a security risk. You know, like what happens if that power plant explodes or, you know, there's a, a substation goes down or something. Um, you know, you're, you're not a very diversified um, sector. And then, you also have to be able to take a large foreign currency exchange risk because LNG is supplied in dollars. Um, customers pay in local currency. You know, if you're in Kenya, you pass that foreign currency risk to your customers who may not be very happy about large swings, and they certainly aren't, as that tends to happen. And Or you may have the utility absorb that, or you might have some hedging, where well, that's very expensive. So trying to make that structure work where all the risks are lined up, because then also you have to secure your LNG supply. So you have exactly. you have to secure a long-term LNG supply or take a risk on the market, which I don't think anyone really plans to do. Um, FSRUs are costing millions of, of dollars in rental because you have to rent it. Um, and then you know, then you need this huge, like the in the old style um, FSRU, the rule of thumb was that you needed one gigawatt of power to make it work to justify it economically and one gigawatt of power is far too big for nearly all 
sub-Saharan African markets um, as a single power plant. So that idea didn't really work. Um, even in South Africa, that idea didn't work because of currency and politics and stuff. Um, so what has changed is that instead of thinking about this as like a single integrated project, people have started to think in a few different ways and creative ways. So the first thing is that people have looked at existing thermal power plants, hubs. So where is currently thermal power that could run on gas that isn't running on gas? Um, so you have Tema in the east of Ghana, um, where there wasn't the ability for quite a few years or for a couple of years to, um, to trans uh, to transport gas from the west where the domestic reserves were to the kind of east of Accra where Tema is and there's about a gigawatt of um, thermal power there it was meant to be supplied by the West African gas pipeline but it was a fair financial bet to say that that wasn't going to work um, any better than it had before yeah. so so the Tema FSU has happened that's already there and that's an interesting scheme it's not a regasification uh, well, it is, it's, it's two, but it's done separately. So you have a large floating storage unit. Um, and the idea is that, yes, this can supply gas to um, the power plants nearby, but this setup is also allows trucking and shipping of LNG cargo. So you can start to supply LNG to mines and off-grid um, companies. And mines, there are a lot of mines in West Africa. There's a lot of mines in inland West Africa and the Sahel, um, currently relying certainly with diesel backup, but you know, sometimes with a bit of grid, but actually largely off-grid. And um, it's one of the things in Ghana that tells you that there's not really a shortage of power is that a lot of the mines have gone off-grid, despite having a yeah. connection to the grid. Um, and they're using gas. But so they're looking at a wider opportunity. It's like, yes, there's this kind of anchor demand. We can sell power. Uh, well, we'll sell gas to um, you know, the aggregator, um, the bulk buyer in Ghana for the power plants, but not be blended with gas from domestic resources and from West African gas pipeline to ensure that there's actual security of supply for the power plants there. But mm -hmm. we're also looking at the bigger opportunity or certainly the broader opportunity of trucking LNG to much smaller power plants here you know, in the order of kind of five to 45 megawatts. Um, which, because it's not that difficult to, you know, to have a regasifier on site. It's not hugely complicated technology. Um, it's kind of established. So, so that's one model. And then people are looking at other places. So you've got um, Kenya, where you have thermal power plants. Power is too expensive. The government wants to bring power costs down. And you've got a bunch of diesel and HFO plants. Well, <laughs> and it's a sophisticated um energy market with you know that people want to do business in it's cost reflective tariffs and and stuff like that and a, a structure that's fairly viable with um good regulation and stuff so you know people well good enough so that's an attractive market to to see can we put in an fsu and fsru some kind of lng solution input solution there so that because there's an obvious business case there's existing power plants that you don't need to be built you it's a bit like, you know, you can think about it a little bit like if you're in a, a, a mortgage chain when you're buying a house. <laughs> if, you're, if you're in a mortgage chain, buying a house can take ages. You've got to wait for the next person's like house sale to go through and then the person after that's house sale to go through. And that's a bit like 
like having an LNG to power project from scratch. You know, you need yeah. the power plant to go through the infrastructure, the gas midstream infrastructure, the FSIU, the LNG supply, it all has to be lined up and takes oh. ages to get everyone in line and then you can go. Like this one is very different. It's like cashless, you know, cash purchase or something like, you know, there's, there's an existing stock of thermal plants that have already been built that could have their costs reduced very quickly. The de- this is the developers want this in most cases, you know, they, they don't care. The fuel cost is a pass through and they just want the government to use their plants so that they don't have to worry about their PPA yep. renegotiators. Um, the government wants it because it's cheaper. Um, the only thing is to see if you can make the logistics work, um, like the logistics and the commercials, you know, add up, yeah. does the solution work? So that Kenya's, Kenya's one, I mean, another one is feeding into poorly performing or declining gas pipelines. So you've got two, I guess, only really two really major um, cross international crossing border pipelines, gas pipelines in Africa. You've got the West African gas pipeline from Nigeria all the way through to Ghana, and you've got um, Rumpco from Mozambique to yeah. South Africa. Now, Rumpco is is going to see declining uh, volumes in quite only a couple of years because Pande and Tamane is declining anyway. There's there's a project to kind of get more gas from Pande and Tamane, but a lot of that is going to go to the gas power plant in Tamane. Um, so there's an opportunity then to bring in LNG to top up that pipeline because it exists already. It's already feeding Sassol, and Sassol wants to use gas to reduce its own carbon emissions because it's currently using coal to make synth fuels. Um, but also, ESCOM wants to decarbonize. It's also using coal and has a whole load of coal power plants that are quite close to that gas pipeline. And they want to keep jobs in that region. Um, mm-hmm. And gas is a really good way of doing it. And there's, there's good reasons to do it. And equally, there's a Interestingly, the pipeline, this Rumpco goes down to Secunda, but there's a second pipeline, the Lily pipeline, which goes down from there to Durban. So it takes gas from Mozambique to Johannesburg and then down to Durban, where there's a large deep water port in Richards Bay. So then Sassel is now looking at flipping that around. So you could import LNG to um, Richards Bay, take that up the Lily pipeline, which already exists, which already goes to Sassel's. Um, facilities and Sorumco. Um, so you could even diversify your supply. So you've got your supply coming from Pandit Tamane, you've got it coming from um, the Maputo Matola FSRU project and from a second FSRU project in Richards Bay. Um, so that's another kind of obvious or much easier business case that makes a lot more sense. You don't have to line everything up. You can come in and you can reduce power costs very quickly or reduce carbon emissions very very quickly without mm-hmm. worrying about new build stuff you know i mean there there's a very straight case sasol is using coal you can use that gas to reduce carbon emissions right now today that's a much easier environmental case to make than well we need to increase our power supply and we want to use more renewables but to use more renewables we have to have more gas so our emissions right. overall will go up but it will go down as a proportion of energy generated but we need more yeah. gas to do it. That's a much harder sell because um, people are, you know, this is really seen as a zero-sum game. And it's not seen as a zero-sum game where Europeans and Americans are willing to give up their gas power plants so that Africa can have a few more. Um, you know, <laughs> people want yeah. it, it yeah. to go down and there's not a lot of, there's really not a lot of sympathy. I mean, I'm, I'm quite surprised about, I mean, 
some some people in the DFIs are furious about it, and some are quite um, quite um, defensive. So um, a lot of the Africa teams are not happy about it. I mean, I definitely say that in in the European and multilateral um, institutions, they they're really unhappy with it. They think it doesn't make any sense. Um, they think it will be bad for for Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, that's that's going to be a point of conversation for many years to come, I think, uh, um, all across the board. And I think, uh, yeah, there's going to be have to be hard, hard battles won and fought and hopefully won to keep some kind of dispatchability on the on the gas frontier uh, from African uh, gas fields, etc. And power plants. So we'll yeah. be talking about this quite a bit more. Um, unfortunately, we're getting closer to the to the end of the podcast, but I wanted to switch gears a little bit, um, Dan, and really just kind of understand a bit more uh, about you know your your path to 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 be doing what you're doing. You're a you're a journalist uh, um, and uh, an analyst uh, of data on the markets, etc. And I think it would be useful also just for our, uh, audience and younger people who are looking to go into the energy sector in Africa, um, what kinds of opportunities in terms of, you know, career opportunities you you, you would feel that there are for younger people uh, trying to get into this field, um, maybe share a little bit about your own path and, and what's, you know, what's drawn you there and kept you there uh, and any advice you might you might have for, for, for young people coming out of universities looking to go into the sector and to to have an impact on on really some of the biggest issues facing Africa, energy, and obviously climate change, and, and striking that balance. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about how you you ended up doing what you're doing, and, and sure. what you would say to young people who are interested in in pursuing yeah uh, a career in this space. Sure. Well, I mean, it's an interesting one. I, I ended up in this job very much by accident <laughs> so I, I actually started work with cross-border information which is the company that owns african energy in 20, 2005 um for work experience when i was at school um because i was very interested in politics um and actually have a relative um in the company so as i will go work with them for two weeks and i was quite good at it um, so i went back over summers to work with them um, why I did went to university and all the rest and then then basically I so I studied physics and economics and then I studied did a master's in international relations um in the Middle East and so initially I was writing on the Middle Eastern side actually because we also have okay. a publication called Gulf States newsletter covers politics and defense and everything in the Middle East um I graduated in 2011 so it was the financial crisis. <laughs> yes. um, the legacy was kind of really hitting the jobs market at that point. It was quite a hard time to be a graduate. Um, and uh, there weren't a huge amount of opportunities. So I just kind of ended up continuing to work for the company I had worked in the summer with you know, on a kind of freelance basis and then uh, couldn't, couldn't really find anything else. And so, yeah. And then as time goes on, you get more and more experience. So after that, I went and did a master's in economics in Paris. Um, and then came back to work kind of full time for for the company. So it was a few years in um, to to basically develop live data. Um, and that was my my role. Okay. So I mean that, okay. that that's my role. I mean for me, I think the you know the key the key was obviously just coming across the company 
effectively almost by accident that um, yeah. you know i mean some ways you, you get lucky you've got a relative who who's in that kind of job who you can ask about this and you know, do work experience with i mean unfortunately not something that you know yeah. happens to everybody but but i think you know the key the key there are a lot of opportunities for graduates in the sector in a lot of places people don't necessarily see and i think people i mean i my staff are almost all graduates like we employ quite a few graduates and um, that tends to be the entry level because you don't get a lot of people who are experienced analysts um in the energy sector especially who will work at journalism type wages so um yeah so you know you tend to recruit graduates and then you know maybe they go on to consultancy or they stay in the in the company or whatever so one of the things that I tend to see is, is, and have seen quite a lot recently actually, is graduates who kind of shoot themselves in the foot. They really want something very specific um, and they want it right at the start. You know, they want to do a certain type of consultancy, they want to do a certain type of this or that. And, um, or, you know, they want a higher wage to start off with. So they start off instead going into marketing or conferences or something like that. Um, obviously also careers in that space, but, um, I mean, the, I think the most important thing for a graduate is to is the education part. Um, you know, this this sector there's a huge amount of jobs and a huge amount of different things, but the one thing, the one common denominator is you need a high level of education um, in any part of it. Um, you know, you ideally really a master's degree. I think um you know you want to have a good grounding of economics and finance you know you need to also be able to understand enough the engineering um basically this the sector is filled with engineers and economists <laughs> yeah uh, and bankers and but you know it's a bit, i think the, the interesting thing from african energy's perspective looking at jobs for graduates is that is to see some of the non-conventional places so i mean obviously there's you, know, you see a lot of graduates and things in working for private equity or for the banks as analysts and researchers and consultants, you know, the big four consultancies do energy work and things like that. But there are a lot of other things around, like um, a lot of due diligence companies, for example, where you're doing um, investigative research. There's the developers and quite a lot of people with, with unusual backgrounds end up in, in developers, actually. They're, they're quite um lean outfits and what they really need is people who are creative smart and approachable um you know i've met people there who've got backgrounds in religious studies and have just ended yeah, up there yeah. and, you know all sorts of stuff um you're in business development in in the developers um obviously the big ep i think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the big epcs have big analytical functions so you know people like general electric and Bartzilla and um, siemens and things they do a lot of analytics a lot of market analytics with their business development um, modeling um certainly financial modeling but also energy system modeling all of that kind of stuff because they you know those those companies really have to understand the dynamics of the markets that they're working in in order mm -hmm. to get business because their their engines and stuff they have to offer the right solutions the right environments and all that kind of stuff sure. um, and they also have to make a very strong case for why people should use their engines and not the other people's turbines or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of analytical stuff that goes on there, actually. So you don't have to be an engineer or a salesman to work at, at, at a big EPC or a big equipment company. Um, so, mm -hmm. 
so yeah, the, I mean, there's all that kind of stuff. And then obviously, I mean, there's bits and pieces. Journalism is can be quite hard. We're actually recruiting at the moment. Um, but you know, generally, there's not a huge amount of jobs in journalism and especially not specific to energy and electricity and things like that. Um, so yeah but yeah but yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot you see a lot of graduates in the sector it's it's a sector that really has a lot of need for um for people with an analyst with analytical capability whether that's qualitative or quantitative um it needs every kind of business so your specialist consultancies you know your multi-consults your afferies your um your mcdonald's you know your your actual engineering guys um, yes you know, they, you've got your engineering development. There's always new work going on for new technologies, especially now. You've got your entrepreneurial things, your startups, your solar home systems. You know, they're hugely up and coming. There's a lot of PhDs are working with solar home system companies to the similar R and D. Mm-hmm. You know, into the business model, the impact. You know, impact investors need people to crunch the numbers. They need people to try and work out ways to calculate their impact, um, to find new opportunities. Um, and these are all kind of graduate type type roles, you know, and as I say, analytical things and functions in the big companies as well. So yeah. there's a lot of opportunity. I think you've, you've got to finding the jobs. I think is I think the hardest thing is actually finding the job. Like where's it advertised and sure. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that's not necessarily so easy, but, but there are certainly jobs out there. And I think the key thing in a lot of ways that what you would learn in this, in, in, in each position is actually very similar. Like, the, the nuts and bolts of the energy industry, I think, are quite well defined. You know, you've got the engineering side of it, and then you've got your financial modeling, and then you've got your sector modeling yep. and analysis. And, and that's kind of it. Like once, once you've been in it for a little while in any of those roles, in a lot of them, you will have got experience of financial modeling and transactions. You'll have a good idea of how project finance works. Um, once you know that, you've got a whole world of, ways that you can apply that in a whole load of different places and and you know and it's huge and really can suit your interests you know like there's the electrification solar home system mini grid companies and development side of things it's it's really interesting lots of ngos working around that think tanks and phds it's a whole ecosystem of largely you know young 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 youngish people um very entrepreneurial very innovative um, and then you've got the kind of harder finance side, working on the bigger projects where, you know, less graduate opportunities, but very well established business paths. And, you know, your way into that could be at one of the companies actually doing it, but might also be at a consultancy providing services to them. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's, mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. there's lots of ways for you. Finding the opportunity can be difficult, but I think you know, mm-hmm. it's keeping mm-hmm. at it and then just entering somewhere getting the experience, knowing how it works. Um, the learning curve is so huge in the first couple of years. Once you're over that, you you become a, a fairly rare commodity. In fact, I was actually, um, we did some work for a recruiter um, recently, and they said that one of their highest demand sectors at the moment is in junior staff. Um, like people who are junior, but have experiences of a couple of, of working on a couple of transactions. Okay. So, I mean, my advice would be, Find find a job with a good company somewhere in the sector, and and once you go for it, be in there for a little while, and then you know don't necessarily worry about it being absolutely your ideal match. 
yeah the ideal place just everyone's kind of doing the same thing just in a different way so yeah. start doing it and then and then you can find um you can find your avenue what you're really interested in once you're there and once you can really see the landscape and also once you know i mean this is the kind of sector as well where you you know people it's a small industry um yeah you know probably a couple of thousand influential yeah people with any influence i mean there's even there's only a handful of companies that actually own the ipps and, and stuff like that only a very small number of really critical players so once you once you've been in there a little bit you start to meet some of those people and it becomes easier to to move into areas where you where your real interests are right 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 no, that's great. That yeah, I think that, <laughs> no, that that <laughs> covers the, it know. really well. I, I think you know, for me, I, a key takeaway is the importance of just starting somewhere. Obviously, if one is in university, you get your degree and get the understanding that you need. But then to get a practical experience, uh, don't try and be overly, uh, uh, you know, finicky about finding the ideal thing. But to start somewhere, even if it's you know a company dealing with let's say diesel, for example, but you're really interested in wind turbines and wind projects, you start there and you 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 build your understanding uh, of how the space operates and who is in it. And within a few years, you can be working on what you're actually interested in, um, uh, which for me has been the case, so so to speak. Um, but yeah, and I, I think so. I think that's great advice. Um, and uh, thanks for, for sharing that. Um, and with that, I, you know, we're unfortunately out of time. Um, but I wanted to thank you, Dan, for this has been a really interesting conversation to, to give this overview of the continent, what's happening at a large scale and, and with some numbers behind it. Uh, a lot of food for thought there. Um, and let's see, there's some critical questions. That, you know, we've elevated, you know, the role of gas, et cetera, expansion of renewables. And uh, yeah, I think we'll be talking a lot more about that uh, in the near future. So thanks again, Dan, for your time. It's, it's, uh, it was really great talking to you and hope to speak with you again uh, before too long. Yeah. Thanks a lot, it was a pleasure. <laughs>